Please pray with me. Spirit of the living God, come now and grow our faith. Come and deepen our hope and strengthen our love and come and water within each of us the desire to be your faithful family forever. Amen. Well, I thought by way of introduction today, I would uh, share a few things that have shaped my, my thinking over the years, that have shaped my theology, I guess, that have shaped my understanding of the world, of life, of faith. And I guess as you get older, we not only try and figure out what we think, but we try and figure out why we think what we think. And so I want to share, just by way of introduction, a few, a few reasons why I think what I think. I guess to try and point to influences. And then we'll move into the readings. I guess the overwhelming shaper of my thoughts, my life, was growing up in this country, in the time that I grew up in this country, under apartheid. And the question that perturbed me, the question that haunted me, the question that was my teacher was... How is it that those who say they believe in Jesus designed and implemented such a barbaric system? How is it that people who go to church week after week after week in their suits and ties could be so deliberate about implementing such an antichrist system. And, and that, that has set the, the absolute framework for every single thought that I've had. And from that follows the following. That if it seemed to me that if Jesus was more concerned about people calling him Lord than people doing what he said we should do, then he is not worthy of being Lord. That Jesus never wanted to be worshipped. The easiest way to... Tame Jesus, domesticate him, is by worshipping him, instead of taking him seriously and trying to follow him. And so he himself said, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, gets it. And so from that, it seemed to me that what is more important is people not believing in Jesus, whether he comes from a virgin or he's the son of God, all of that I think is pretty meaningless to Jesus. But whether we believe in what he believed in, 
He believed in justice. He believed in equality. He believed in truth. He believed in gentleness. He believed in mercy. And he wants to know if we believe in those things. And with that learning, I learned that the Bible is a very, very dangerous book. That as much as it can be used to liberate, it has been so often used to oppress. By taking a verse or two here and there and subjugating peoples in the name of God. Doing terrible things to our neighbor, believing we're pleasing God. Because of a verse or two. Not just around racism, but around patriarchy, sexism, homophobia. The church continues to do it. We haven't learned. And so it seemed to me that if I had one task in preaching, teaching, it would be to try and show how the Bible has been used to oppress and then to offer a different interpretation that might possibly bring liberation and healing. That's been the task. Learning, unlearning. And in the process of engaging with the Bible, I've learned that to take it literally is an absurdity. That it's not a sign of faith to take the Bible literally, it's a sign of superstition. That do you know that there are people who are obsessed about believing that Jonah hung out in a whale for three days, obsessed with that. You've got to have faith in that if you're a true believer. But they will be happy to bomb the living daylights out of Nineveh. That you can memorize the Torah, memorize the Torah, but you can bomb the living daylights out of Gaza. I'm convinced that Jesus will rather have you doubt thought Jonah in a whale, but get to Nineveh and show some mercy. Reading the Bible, it seems to me that the overwhelming story, recurring story, is about a group of people struggling to be free struggling to be recognized as equal. And then they win that struggle because God always is on the side of the oppressed. And then they come into power and they forget the struggle and they become like the people who they once resisted. And then they go back into captivity and a new liberation struggle must begin again and again and again. Seems to be the story. We're living that out in our country today and in the world. That the Bible focuses on life before death. And it's the most incredible sleight of hand that has tried to convince the world and done so effectively to suggest that it's about life after death. That is the most brilliant thing that the powers have done, to get us to believe that salvation is about life after death, believing this and that about a person long ago so we can get into a nice place after we die. 
I don't know if you've read the Bible, you'll notice that God's not into religion at all. I don't know if you know that. There's not a single verse that God says, hey, go and start a religion. He doesn't even tell Jesus to start a religion. He just tells them, go and live justly and mercifully and humbly. That's what it's about. And salvation, what does it mean to be saved? It means to be set free from fear, to choose to live life justly, mercifully, and humbly, because it takes courage to live justly, mercifully, and humbly in this world. And through the Bible, the voices have been very clear that you can't love God through religious ritual. You can only love God by loving your neighbor. No other way to love God. And those who love their neighbor, whether they like it or not, they're loving God, whether they believe in that God or not. And then I guess the final thing that's always before me is that every time I come to an interpretation of Scripture, the one question that, that, that lives with me is, does my will my interpretation lead to the powers that be being so threatened that they may institute crucifixion? What am I saying? Paul said, preach Christ crucified. He didn't just say preach about Jesus. He said, preach Christ crucified. Preach in such a way that honors the crucified Christ, that, that takes on the powers that be, that threatens them to such a degree they may want to take your life. I've obviously not done a good enough job of that because I'm still here. That, that is the test, just by the way. That is the confession. And I guess through these lessons, the one person who's embodied this more than anybody else for me in my life is Mahatma Gandhi. He seems to have ticked all of these boxes in a way that I can understand and comprehend. And so I share that just as an introduction of what, what makes uh, me see what I see as we enter into the text. Now today is, it's called Christ, the, the full title, Christ the King of the Universe Sunday. It's the final Sunday of the church calendar. What's the church calendar? It, it traces the life of Jesus and pauses at significant events, birth, death, etc., and I guess this calendar invites us, Sunday by Sunday, to do time differently. To mark time, not with days, but to mark time with a story. To mark time, not in years, but in yearnings. The, the yearning for justice, the yearning for the things that Jesus yearns for. Freedom, peace, equality, healing. So today's the Christ, the King of the Universe Sunday. Now, firstly, how has it been misunderstood? We start there. I begin with what it does not mean. 
You would have heard prayers already. You would have heard liturgy. Some of you who are not familiar coming to this place, it jars to hear Christ will reign forever. It jars. There's something, there's something exclusive about it. There's something narrow and nationalistic about it. Come on, you atheists in the house. Put up your hand. All right. There we go. You know it. Okay. There we go. It jars because it has been understood as a statement of comparative religion, like Christianity is the best religion, Christ will reign, everyone eventually will come down and bow to Christ as the best one. It's a childish interpretation. It's, it's like kids who say, my dad's stronger than yours. Uh, I think the Dalai Lama gets it right. You remember when the Dalai Lama was asked, what's the best religion? And, and he replied, yours is. Yours, yours is. The religion or lack thereof that makes you a better person is. So when we say Christ, the king reigns in the universe, it's not in a narrow nationalistic comparative religion sense. What could it mean? My understanding is what Christ stood for, lived for, died for, that reigns forever. Truth will reign forever. Justice will reign forever. Forgiveness, mercy, gentleness will reign. Equality will reign forever. And you may kill it, you may kill it, but I promise you now it's going to resurrect and come back again and again and again. And forever. But more than that, let's look at the origin of the day. Where did this, this day, Christ the King of the universe, come from? It's not very old. It was instituted by the Pope in 1925. Three years to the day, three years to the day after Mussolini was made Prime Minister in Italy. Three years to the day. You will know Mussolini. He became prime minister from 1922 to 1925. In 1925, he declared himself il dios, meaning the leader, and set up an authoritarian regime until, what, 1943. He began the fascist party. The slogan was this, believe, obey, and fight. Believe, obey, and fight. He outlawed organized labor. He ruled by fear with his secret police. He removed all political opposition, inspired Hitler. And to that, the Pope instituted this day said, Mussolini, you who are accountable to none and have acquired all authority unto you and to you alone, I have news for you. There is one who is a higher power than you, who you are ultimately accountable to and responsible to. Christ, the King of the universe, You've overreached, Mussolini. You've overreached. 
And so today was specifically put in place to check fascism, to check authoritarian rule. It's explicitly political. Later, I don't know if it was an appeasement or not, but three years later, Mussolini agreed to the Vatican Sea receiving its independence. 1929. So, today is a day of Christ the King of the Universe, specifically designed, intended to resist authoritarian rule. I don't have to tell you how... Fascism is festering around the world today. No longer on the fringes, but elected into power. In places that we could never dream of before. So it's into that context now that we're invited to deal with the scripture. So why would they choose Matthew 25? The sheep and goats. First of all, please notice what the shepherd does not say in the passage. Notice what the shepherd doesn't say. The shepherd does not say, all of you who believe in God on my right-hand side. All of you who believe in God on my right-hand side, and you're going to receive the reward of my father. And all of you who don't believe in God on my left, you're going to go to eternal fire. That's not what the text says. It's not the distinction between sheep and goats. It may again come as a surprise to you, but God is not very big into self-promotion. The Bible is not obsessed about trying to convince people to believe that there's a God. I don't know if you've read it. What God is, tries to promote is life, always. There's life and death before you. Choose life, choose life, choose life. And the Bible tries to help us to live life in life-giving ways. So, firstly, what we hear the text is not saying, those who believe or don't believe, that's not the distinction that God cares about or Jesus How is it most often understood, this passage? At best, that uh, we need to live charitable lives, right? So feed the hungry, give some water to the thirsty, visit the sick, the imprisoned, clothe the naked, welcome the stranger, live a charitable life. And to that extent, we can maybe... Uh, Put judgment off. Judgment being what happens to you when you die. So it's an individualized interpretation, and it's focused about what happens to us or will not happen to us once we die. And again, that's, that's convenient, because I ask myself, would Jesus be crucified for that interpretation? You don't get crucified for charity in this world. No one gets crucified for charity. In fact, they call you a saint. Saint Mother Teresa. They call you a saint. They cheer you on. 
One of the Latin American bishops, he said this. He said, you know, when I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why the poor do not have food, they call me a communist. No one gets crucified for charity. The church has specialized in charity. There's a danger in charity. It's necessary, it's commendable, but there's a danger. There's a power dynamic. I've got what you need. And that's why so often charity turns to abuse. And the whole thinking of this passage of Scripture that I've got to do this so that I can kind of skirt judgment is motivated by fear. And fear cannot motivate one to love. So let me offer a different interpretation. If you read the text carefully, you will notice that it was the nations that was before him. Not individuals. The nations. In other words, it's political. It's national. It's social. The nations will stand before the one on the throne, and the one on the throne will separate the nations. It's the separation of nations. And what is the separation based on? It's based on the policy and practice of the nations. So, those who have a policy and practice of making sure that there is food security, that there is clean and sustainable water, that strangers, read foreigners, are welcomed and not burned to death, that the naked are given housing, clothing, the sick are having access to health care, that the prisoners receive restorative justice and return back into community and relationship. Those nations will flourish and there'll be life. But woe unto those nations who care not for the hungry and the thirsty and the sick and the naked and the imprisoned and the foreigner. Woe to them. They will burn eternally. Not in the next life, but in this life. It will be the flames of burning tires of eternal unrest. Eternal unrest. Eternal unrest. And no one of us will get to sleep peacefully. Anxiety and fear will stalk the land. That's the fire. Eternal until, until we work on food security and drinking and etc. And we start practicing these policies. It was nothing new that Jesus was saying. You heard the psalm that Evelyn read, Psalm 113, that spoke of how God raises the poor from the dust. That's all it's saying. Raise the poor from the dust. Make your policies prioritizing the least and the poor. And so Jesus gets crucified not because he said he was God, but because he challenged people who thought that they were God. Jesus did not get crucified because he said he was God. He was crucified because he challenged people who thought they were God. So the reading is there to challenge Mussolini. 
and the Mussolini lookalikes. We have a number of them. To say that you are accountable, you're not the ruler of the universe. And this is how you're meant to rule. But if you don't, there's going to be eternal fire. There will be no peace in this country until there is justice. Tell me, do you really want to continue living in a country where the majority of people do not have land and housing? Regardless of history, just regardless, do you want to live in a country going forward where the vast majority of people do not have land and housing? Do you want to live in that country? Because if you choose to live in that country, there will be eternal fire. And so therefore, we surely have to give everything of ourselves in every manner of speaking to try and work for something that is different. Now, Warning, Jesus got crucified when he challenged the, the powers. That's what happens when you go against the Mussolinis. You get persecuted. And I think uh, there are three temptations with all of us here. The one is that we, when we look at the state of things in the world and in our country, we just get overwhelmed. And we actually stop believing that things can change. I think someone once said, it's easier to believe that the world is going to come to an end than for the world to actually be transformed. So we get overwhelmed. And we sucked into this despair. That's the one response. The next response is fear, and we just get silenced. We're fearful. We're fearful to speak up in our places of work, we're fearful to speak up in our communities. We're fearful to stand publicly for this or that. We're fearful, and it silences us. And then I guess the third temptation always, which we've seen operative in the last couple of weeks, tragically, is that we, we, we resist the powers that be in the same way of the powers that be. We imitate the powers. We take up arms, and I guess we become what we hate and we, we bring pain and suffering, which then just reaps a cycle over and over. So what does one do if we're not going to be despairing, fearful, or imitating? I've taken great solace from that story in uh, Daniel over the years. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refuse to bow to Mussolini. The Mussolini of that time was Nebuchadnezzar. And they were thrown into the furnace. Did you read carefully? The people who put them in the furnace were burnt. Think poetically. Don't take it literally. It's an absurdity. Poetically. Those who place people into the ovens die. And then Nebuchadnezzar looks and he asks his counsel. He said, didn't we put three people into the fire? And they say very, you know, as you do, yes, king, you are correct. 
And Nebuchadnezzar said, but I see a fourth walking around. That's the promise. That those who enter into the fire of persecution as a result of challenging the Mussolinis in the world. The promise is not that you'll be spared the fire. The promise is that you'll find an accompaniment in the fire. And that the powers who put you into the fire will do a different maths. You may look around and just see three, but the powers will see you are more than who you say you are. Always. I don't know if it happened that way, but I know it's true. And so I guess my final word today, one of the great privileges of being in Cape Town for the last 15 years is to, is to work with people in this, in this city who very vulnerably have gone against Nebuchadnezzar, who have said, no, we're not going to bow to you. We deserve housing, and we deserve it here, in this place. We, we clean the homes of these people, but we're not allowed to live here. Enough, enough. We will occupy your buildings. So many vulnerable people who have put their lives on the line and been thrown into the fire. My prayer for you, my prayer for you is that you will see an accompaniment by you, with you. And I want you to know that when I've seen you in the fire, I've seen a fourth. I've seen a fourth. In other words, I've seen something greater than what you were doing. Even if you can't see it yourself. Let's be quiet. <laughs> and if there's anything true in these words, may they take root in our life. Let's be quiet. Help us to believe, O oh God, that truth and justice and gentleness and mercy will reign forever. Help us to give our lives to give expression to them. And if ever thrown into the fire, give us a presence that sustains us. And open the eyes of those who heat up the furnace to see. Amen.